Well, I know it's only November, but let me be the first to say Merry Christmas. (laughs) These are the real symbols of Christmas. This is the Advent wreath. You heard Debbie talk a little bit about what that means. This is the first week of the four weeks of Advent. In the church calendar, traditionally, it means the anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ. Advent from the Latin word meaning to come. And so as you heard Debbie say, the first week of Advent, which is weekend, first Sunday, is today. And it's the time traditionally where we share from one of the prophecies that foretells the coming of our Lord Jesus, coming not only as Lord, but as Savior. And as Debbie mentioned, Isaiah is a big part of the prophecies that go there. And we're going to be talking, we're going to be looking at Isaiah in our time together this morning. And even over the course of the next four weeks, I and other members of the pastoral and the elder team will be preaching on the theme of Jesus' coming. We're kind of sort of loosely titling this, Jesus came to, and in my, my message that God put on my heart is, Jesus came to be our king. And next week we'll get another aspect of what it means that Jesus came to earth for us. And so over the next four weeks we'll be looking at that. And so if you've got your word, if you would open it up to Isaiah 9, we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. This will sound familiar to you, but I trust that as we start to unpack it, we'll see what God is really trying to teach each one of us today. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's, uh, hard to be kind of contained when you're reading verses like that. Let's give God some, some praise and just ask him to be speaking to each one of us. Amen. Lord, you are king. You are Jesus who is king, who came to earth 2,000 years ago to show us the way of salvation, to accomplish for us what couldn't be accomplished prior to your coming. Lord, I pray that you would be in each of our hearts, showing us something new and deep about who you are and what you came to do. Lord, help us understand what it means to live with you as our king, to serve you, because you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I thank you, Lord, for these words that you put into Isaiah's heart and that he wrote down so many years ago to guide us, encourage us, and instruct us. Now give me your words to speak, Lord. Open our hearts, open our ears to hear what you would say to each one of us so that we would leave this sanctuary never the same again, but going boldly on your behalf and for your glory. Amen. So this is the time. This is, we start to get into the season of decorations. How many people have a tree at this point? Oh, early bird special. How many people have actually gotten a Christmas card in the mail? We get two cards at this time every year from the same two people. Because these guys are the super organized kind. You know, they they not only have a nice card with a nice message, they've even got a photograph. 
I mean, if you're on the Gorin family mailing list, you're lucky to get a card. True confessions. I'll just tell you. We're a little sporadic on the Christmas card. And if you actually got a picture of our family, you probably got two pictures. One when our daughter was born about 25 years ago, and another one when she graduated from high school. You know, that's it for the pictures. That's it for the cards. That's, we just kind of don't do that. But when you get a card, usually it's, a, it's something that is a verse of scripture typically. It's a warm Christmas greeting. It's something that's, that's fitting for the season. You're like, God, thank you. You're, you're thinking about me. Maybe I could think about you. At least I'll call you. I'll text you. Thank you for the card. But there's something that's going on. We just love getting those Christmas cards. We love the fact that it calls out the birth of our Savior and of our Lord. And oftentimes, you may even see Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 written on that card. For unto us, a child is born. It's like, oh, that's so great. But when Isaiah is writing this, things aren't great. Things aren't warm. There's no hot chocolate. There's no Christmas carols. There's no season's greetings when he's in the middle of this. Because he's writing at a time of destitution. He's writing where things have not only gone, they've been bad for Israel, but they're now about to get worse. If Isaiah was going to write a Christmas card to the Israelites at that time, he would be writing his verse called Isaiah 2, 6, and 8, where he's actually speaking to God's charges, God's indictment against Israel, why they're in the mess they're in. And he says this in Isaiah 2, You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. There is no, their, their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. That's what Isaiah is talking about. This is why he's writing to the Israelites now. Because their situation is so dire. And he's saying, this is why you're in the trouble that you're in. The kingdom is divided already. It's been divided for almost 200, 300 years at this point. Why? Because Israel decided that they wanted, 300 years before this, they wanted a king. And they asked Samuel for a king. They want their own king. And God says to Samuel, Samuel goes and inquires, and God says, they have rejected me as king. And he says to Samuel, tell them this, if you want a king, here's what's going to happen. That king will draft your young men into the army. That king will draft your young women to serve and make provisions for the army. That king will practice eminent domain and take your lands and give them to his buddies just because that's what he wants to do. That king will make you slaves so that you will, write, you will cry out to the Lord for relief and in that day there will be no relief. This is what it means to have an earthly king. And if you know a little bit about the history, you know that the king started with Saul. But Saul doesn't live up to the expectation that God had for him. Saul goes down because of his pride. Out of his pride, he is disobedient. And because of that disobedience, he is dismissed by God. And God raises up David, a man after his own heart. But David begins to think he's all that. And that leads to adultery. And then that adultery leads to murder. And that murder leads to the division that Israel is now experiencing. Why? Why? Because these guys can't be the king that God is. 
They are frail, fallen, fragile human beings. But that's who Israel wanted. So God said to Samuel, you, you, okay, you can anoint a king. So it started, of course, with Saul, goes to David. Even Solomon, who's David's son, one of David's son, who takes over for him, who's called the wisest man that ever lived, who under his reign, Israel expanded to its greatest points in the Middle East. Even under him, corruption manifests itself. Because Solomon is lustful, he is greedy, his wealth and his lust is chronicled, and it leads to him going after the gods of the many wives that he had. So being an earthly king is not a good idea. Being an earthly king is not something that Israel really wanted to have. And Isaiah is saying because of that king thing that you guys wanted to do so many years ago, you're in the trouble now that I'm talking about. And, and that division actually leads to Israel being conquered. They're just about to be taken over by the Assyrians, at least 10 of those 12 tribes. And later on, the other two will go to the Babylonians. And God sends Isaiah to tell them this, to tell them what is happening, why it's happening. And so if you ask the average Israelite at the time, what's going on for you and the king? How is that working for you? They would probably say, it's complicated. Oh, now some of you know that term, but it's a term in our culture. It's usually used of relationships. When you say, how's that relationship going? And they say, it's complicated. It means what? Well, there's some good points, but there's some not so good points. There's some things I like, but there's some things I don't understand. There's a little bit of a future I can see, but a whole lot of negatives that are out there. It's complicated. There's even a Facebook category called complicated. If you're talking about your relationship status on Facebook, you can say I'm single, I'm married, or it's complicated. <laughs> the Israelites would say their relationship with the king is complicated because there were some good things that happened. Israel did have some aspects of glory. Jerusalem did become the capital under David. There was provision and a good life under these kings at some points and in some places. So there's some good things. But because their king is not God any longer, because Yahweh is no longer the one who they are entrusting to provide for them, to protect them, to watch over them, to live under, they're in the mess they're in. It's complicated. So this Christmas, I think some of us realize that our relationship with the king of kings is also complicated. Let's really be honest. We love at Christmas celebrating the fact that Jesus is Savior. Oh, he's our Savior. I mean, you're in the Bible when you say that. Yes, he came as Savior. Unto us a child is given. A Savior is born according to Luke 2.11. He's our Savior. I love that. That means that all my sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. And that I've given my life to him so I will be with him in eternity. I love the fact that he's my Savior. But he's also coming as King. Oh, now it's complicated. Well, why is it complicated? Because the idea of a king in Bible times, a king is somebody who had absolute authority over your life. A king is somebody who came with power to achieve what he wanted to achieve. Does he have authority? Yeah. In that 1 Samuel 8 passage that I referenced, when, when Samuel's talking to God and God says, this is what an earthly king is like, you can see that he has authority. In other words, he has the right to do with your life what he decides he wants to do. He may promote some of you. He may demote others of you. He may allow some of you to live. He may kill 
others of you. He may do whatever he wants. He has the authority, the legal authority to do what he wants to do. That's what kings in Bible times were given. Now some of them, of course, had a code of law and they could not violate that code of law, the Medes and the Persians. So there's sort of a higher expectation and even the Israelite kings had to exercise their kingship under the laws of Yahweh. But nevertheless, they had incredible authority. And along with that incredible authority went incredible power. Power is is the ability to get something done that you want to have done. If you're a king, what is your... What is your instrument of power? Well, it's your army. How do I make sure that I can beat that other guy? I got my soldiers. I got more soldiers than he does. So I've got power. I've got more resources than he does. So I can kind of provision my army. I have authority and now I've got power. We even rank kings by the kind of power that they have. Anybody take your history and you hear about Alexander the Great? Why is he the great? Because he captured more territory than anybody else and he did more things culturally than anybody else. He had, in other words, more power than anyone else. So we rank kings that way. We, they have authority, they have power. And one of the things that kings were really supposed to do if they're going to have a kingdom that lasts was to actually protect their people. If you're in a place and your king can't protect you, what are you going to do? See ya. Time to go. Looks like I'm late. And Israel does this from time to time in their history. Sometimes they conclude that those that are over their land can't cut it, don't have enough juice, so they go to Egypt. And they're not trusting in God, so that's a problem. But Bible time, kings had authority, they had power, they were supposed to protect their people. And so when, when the Bible says that Jesus is coming as a king, he is coming with that in mind. He is coming with full authority. He is coming with full power. And he is coming as he works out his plan in our lives to protect us throughout our time this side of heaven. And I want us to explore that. If, we're, if we really want to understand what it means this Christmas that Jesus is coming, if we really want to take on board what it means for him to come as king, then I want us to get in touch with his authority. Does Jesus have authority over our lives? Yeah, he does, for a number of reasons, not least of which is because he made every one of us. He created us. Even if you're a rank atheist, Jesus is still the one in charge. I hope that you get to know that and understand that, but it doesn't matter necessarily whether what we believe or think about Jesus. Nevertheless, he is the creator of all that we know, all that we can see, all that we've experienced, and even things that we can't see powers, principalities, nothing has been created that did not get created through Christ, in him and through him, and is sustained by him. So that should be encouraging. If, if, God is, if Christ is the highest authority that we can ever have or live under, what other minor authorities, lesser authorities that are coming at you, that are dogging you, that are oppressing you, are they stronger than Christ's? No, no. Jesus says to his disciples before he sends them out for their lifetime mission of going into the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus had taught them, he says what? As the preface, Matthew 28, 18, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus has authority over our lives. Not only because he created us, but because he commissions us. Now, we don't like that, do we? 
I mean, come on. We don't always like that. There are times where we just find ourselves just saying, well, it's complicated. I know what you're saying in my life, Lord. I know that you have authority, but in this area, I'm just not following you. You know, I'm from America. We, we get to vote on stuff. We, we get to, like, have a dialogue. We, we get to throw our opinion in. We get to come to a consensus. She's like, I made you. I made the world. I made eternity. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above yours. So he says that to us. But one of the reasons that it gets complicated for us is we've had poor models of leadership. Some of us were raised in homes where the authority structures were far more challenging and honestly just really oppressive, if you just want to be honest about it. That's why Paul says to fathers, fathers, don't exasperate your kids. He says that because our parents can do things that really exasperated us when we were younger. They can be too picky. They can be too... Uh, always in our business, not necessarily giving us space just to grow and just to be a child or just to learn on our own. Now, that's a balancing act, mom and dad, so I get that. That doesn't mean you let your kids do whatever they want. They can go to their room. You never have to hear from them for months. You just feed them from time to time, and you hope that homework comes out the front door from, you know, on occasion. No, that's not the kind of parenting we're talking about, but we're talking about an authority that's exercised out of a posture of love and out of a connection to our loving Lord and Savior. So some of us grew up with authority experiences that were more of the world than of the Lord. And they weren't positive. Some of you are on jobs right now where the guy is just tripping. Your boss thinks he's all that or she's all that. It's always her way. You can't even say anything because you're going to be perceived as somebody who's not on board, not a team player. We labor under these poor models of authority. We are uh, hurt by these poor models of authority. And that's why when we hear that Christ is our authority, we kind of go, I hope he's better than what I've experienced. I grew up in a family where they would sometimes say, mom or dad would sometimes say, hey, do what I say, not as I do. Let me just say, it's a good phrase, I get it, but it's not good leadership. You know, it's not a good exercise of authority. Don't say that to your kids. You know, they, they're going to look at what you're doing anyway. And even if you don't have kids, if you're an uncle or an aunt, they're looking at you. And if you say that I'm a follower of Jesus, they're really looking at you. They're going to look at your life to see if Christ is really making a difference. To see if you're really living under him as the authority. You don't have to say anything about the gospel. You're showing the gospel in everything that you do to, your, to the young people that are in your life. So, so I just say that and call that out so that we, as we live under the Lord's authority, we, we reflect that and we, are his, um, we positively, positively reflect on him. But the other reason we don't like authority is we're just naturally rebellious. You know, this is Satan's problem. He is a, pride was his undoing. He did not want to submit to the authority of the creator who made him. So he decides he's going to do his own thing. That seed, that's what <clears throat> excuse me, theologians call kind of original sin. That sense of us <clears throat> wanting our own way, being our own person, doing our own thing, that natural rebellion, that fleshly nature, that carnal nature, that's what it's called, that still can manifest. And sometimes that causes us to 
say it's complicated when it comes to following the Lord, to being under his authority. So I want to say this, a couple things in response to any of those attitudes that you may be wrestling with or struggling with. Jesus in Matthew 11:29 says this, I'm, here's what my authority looks like. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, on one hand, he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is divine. He is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And, and our response is just to hit the deck and worship him and just, just, you know, what could we say if you read Scripture, those that had an encounter, not even with, in the throne of God himself, but even just with his messengers, with angels, they are scared And rightly so, because they realize how, in that instant, how imperfect, how flawed, how in need of a Savior they are. And their only logical and emotional reaction is just to be on their face. And that's appropriate when faced, coming face to face with the King of Kings. But the reason that Jesus came, one of the reasons he came in the flesh is to show us and lead us as a person like we are. As, as a member of the human race as we are. And he says, as a man, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. A yoke was something that you put on oxen to guide them in the way that they were to plow the field. And so there is that yoke is that symbol of authority. But it is not oppressive. It is not to our detriment or our destruction. It is actually to our good and to his glory. And so if we know that, if we appreciate that fully, we will want to help God put that yoke upon us and say, Lord, yeah, strap me in. Lock me into your will. Let me make sure that I never get far or straying off of your path, the place that you have by your authority, the plan that you want for my life. I want that, Jesus. And I want nothing else. Forgive me for the times I've taken my own yoke and put it on. Or I've even worse, I've gone to somebody else and said, please put your yoke on me. Please take all your dysfunction, all your mess, all your own pride, and and I want to live under that. Does that sound crazy? I hope so, because it is. It's really crazy. But we do that. And Jesus is saying, no, take my yoke upon you. There's nothing that the world offers. There's nothing that a relationship offers that is ultimately going to be to your blessing. Don't be like the Israelites who said, I want a king. I want another authority other than God. I want another relationship other than the one that God wants for me. I want a different job other than the one that God wants for me. I want to be really rich and I want to have a lot of stuff even though God says that's not really good for me. If you want something other than what you know God has for you, you're taking somebody else's authority. You're asking for another king. And Israel's experience, 300 years of misery, is telling us that's not the right way. And so this is an opportunity for us to hear from the Lord and take His yoke upon us. How do you live under the authority of the Lord? What's an easy way to kind of remember this? Because otherwise you're just going to be scraping your conscience all the time saying, Lord, did I, am I living under your authority? Someday we can get a little neurotic about it. You want to be reflective, but you don't want to be sort of all obsessed about it. So here's a good shorthand way to ensure that we live, that each of us is living under the authority of God. And that is this, to have an attitude of gratitude for the things that are going on in our lives. To give thanks, in other words, in all circumstances. 
Let me unpack that for a minute. So that's coming out of 1 Thessalonians 5. Verses 16 to 18 say this. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. When we, regardless of what's going on in our lives, the hard stuff, the easy stuff, the fun stuff, and then the really hard, hard stuff, when whatever is going on in your life, however you want to fit those into the categories that I've just described, when we do that and give thanks to God in all those circumstances for every one of those things, you know what you're doing when you're doing that? You're acknowledging that he has authority in your life. Now, let's be clear. You're not saying that I'm giving thanks for that circumstance. Evil comes against us, and sometimes it's really evil. Some of us I know we're out here working against, for example, human trafficking. Talk to people that have been in our church, victims of human trafficking. That is a monstrous evil. So we're not giving thanks for that, but we're giving thanks that even in the midst of that, Jesus can be found. And part of the healing for people, and part of the healing through hard, hard times, is to see where Christ was at the time and where he is now in our life, to see how he's redeeming us, to see how he's building us up, to how he's healing us. We could you know, spend a whole series on that alone, but just to say that when we give thanks to the Lord in all circumstances, whatever persecutions are coming against us, we're acknowledging that Christ's authority is over us and that we're going to respond the way he leads us to and we're going to call out for his healing where we need it and we're going to call out for the provision that he provides to get through whatever that has been. But we give thanks in all circumstances. And Paul is writing this, by the way, to the Thessalonians. If you know something about the Thessalonians, these are guys that are, you know, they're, they're in modern-day Turkey, but it's not a resort town. No, this is a people that were absolutely under real persecution by the Jews and by the Greeks. They're under such persecution that the reason Paul writes this letter is because he's not sure that they're going to make it. He wonders if they've let go of their faith because life has been so tough on them. Does that sound kind of familiar? Can some of us identify with that today? Does this sound like the world that we're in, where things are changing so rapidly, where just things in society that are, are shifting with such magnitude in terms of values and in terms of actions and in terms of what we consider the good life? Disparity amongst income, uh, hypersexualization of our entire culture, all kinds of stuff going on, uh, terrorist attacks, you name it. There's persecution. I talk to more young people today that are having real questions and even doubts about their faith. Like, I see all this stuff going on. Where is the Lord? That is the world's persecution. Oh, you still believe in Jesus? That's so quaint. That's so 80s. That was really good when, you know, we had all kinds of Judeo-Christian culture. But now, get with it. It's not where we are. It's not real life. No, that is the real life. But this is Thessalonica. These guys are experiencing what you can look around now and, and see for yourself. And Paul is worried about this group. And he's saying, are you still faithful? And he's so concerned that he sends Timothy to find out. No ability to Skype. Had to send people directly there. Report back. And so Timothy has just come back from seeing Thessalonica. Not only seeing them survive, but thrive 
And he's excited. And he's excited. And Paul's excited. So he says, I couldn't stand any longer. I had to find out how you guys are doing. So I sent Timothy. And he's just come back. And he says, you guys are on fire for the Lord. Even though you had to endure all kinds of persecution, you guys are standing tall. You are fighting the fight of faith. You're keeping the ground for the kingdom in the midst of some really hellish territory. That's basically what he's saying. And in the midst of that, he gives this advice as he's winding his first letter down. So rejoice always, you who are being persecuted. Pray continually because the enemy's got stuff coming against you. And no matter how bad it is, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This allows you to glorify the Lord. This, is, this allows you to show off his power in your life. That's what Paul is saying. That's why he says, Give thanks in all circumstances. So if you want to know, are you living under the authority of Christ? Here's the simple question. Are you giving thanks in all circumstances? Think of something now that you're struggling to give thanks for. Where you've said, it's complicated. I don't know. Now just say to yourself, Lord, thank you for that situation. I may not know. I may not find it easy. I know it's hard. I don't know how long it's going to be, but if it's any longer, I think I'm going to pop. You can say whatever you want to say, but give thanks to the Lord in that circumstance. I want you to do it. If you're taking notes, write that down and say, this week I'm going to give thanks in all those circumstances. Start with the toughies. Let's just cut to the chase. Start with the big ones. Just say, Lord, I know you're in there. I don't know what you're doing precisely. I don't know how you're doing it, but I know you're in there with me. And see what he does. You know when you start to give thanks in all circumstances, it's just a spiritual principle, not quite sure how it works, but it does. He just starts to release more power, more healing, more power, more transformation in the middle of that, in the middle of that to change what you wanted to change all along and to develop what you wanted to develop all along. And if you're really honest, you were trying to do it all by yourself. So let the Lord work in you. Let him work, um, let him be unleashed in your life by just saying, Lord, I acknowledge you in all my circumstances. I give thanks in all my circumstances. Am I just making stuff up? No. We could have a testimony time and you guys, one after another, could come up and speak to that point. That would be great. But we don't have time. Uh, What? But you can look, open your Bible, you can see Paul and Silas in prison in Acts 16. They've been beaten within an inch of their life. They've been unjustly uh, beaten and thrown into prison. And in the, in the middle of all of this, in, amongst their wounds, amongst their hurts, they're not bitter, they're not throwing off on the magistrates, they're not saying those guys are just terrible. What, are the, what does the text tell us that they're doing? They are praying and singing hymns to God. Is that a version of, of giving thanks in all circumstances? Yeah. What happens after that? God's power is unleashed. The earthquake happens. The prison doors are thrown open. And God actually uses their imprisonment to save the Philippian jailer and his family and to build a church in Philippi. Their praising God in all circumstances was a part of that. What power does God want to release in whatever struggle and challenge you're facing now by your just acknowledging his power, his presence, giving thanks in all circumstances. I would love, you know, I just am praying that each one of us, me included, does that in the course of this week. And then if you're in a small group or you're in a fellowship or just calling up a friend, say, man, this is what happened. This is what God did. 
So he has the authority as the king of kings. Acknowledge it by giving thanks in all circumstances. And the second point I really want to hit, and this will probably be, uh, we won't have time to fully develop it, but I said that Bible kings came with authority, and Bible kings came with power. And Jesus comes with power, doesn't he? He comes with power to change what's going on in our life, to make us the people he wants us to be. And, and we cry out for that power in certain circumstances. The harder it is, the more power we want him to display. We want, to be, we want an Elijah on Mount Carmel moment. And if you like that, are you in a situation now where you just think, oh Lord, it's time to do business, time to have a real talk, time to have a showdown about who's going to be God, who's going to be king in this situation or in, in this relationship. This is Elijah coming to Mount Carmel, having the same thing. The prophets, uh, uh, Elijah, this is in, in 1 Kings 18, and Jezebel and Ahab, they are the king and queen of, of Israel, but they are rank pagans by the way they live. They are following after a completely false god named Baal. And they've organized 450 priests to kind of do the duty. And Elijah has enough of this. He's like, we're going we're gonna to have it out. And so they go to Mount Carmel and Elijah says, okay, you get your fire and sacrifice going here. I'll get mine there. You guys go first. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to each call out to our gods and the one who comes down with fire to consume the sacrifice, he's God. Okay? Prophets of Baal like, yeah, there's 450 of us, only one of you. Okay, we got this. And so they build their little fire. They put their sacrifice on it. They're dancing around. They're doing all the stuff to show that they're very sincere. And this goes on throughout the morning. And Elijah's like, how's that? I'm not really seeing anything. Maybe your God, maybe Baal's late. He says this. He starts talking trash to the, to the prophets of Baal. He says, maybe they're late. Maybe, they're on a, maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he can't hear you. And so the, the, the prophets of Baal, all 450, get really sincere. They really get fired up so they start cutting themselves and they start doing these things to show that they can suffer to show that they really mean business and they're praying to Baal and they're calling down Lord you know Baal come on just light this fire they are speaking to nothing and as a result of that nothing is exactly what's happening sometimes that's like us when we're not under the king of kings we're but we're trying to fix stuff we're speaking to nothing and nothing can be happening. Elijah, on the other hand, he knows who his God is. He knows the power of his God. He knows it so much that he actually, he builds his, puts his wood, puts his sacrifice on it. There's stones actually underneath it. And he digs a ditch around it. And he fills the ditch with water. And then he takes buckets of water, pitchers of water, pours it over the sacrifice just to make sure that there's no trickery. They say in the sports channel, no trickeration. There's nothing that can go on to show off God other than God himself. And so after the priest of Baal, nothing happens. Then Elijah prays to God. And fire comes down from heaven in an instant, consumes not only the sacrifice and the wood, but the stone itself, all the waters licked up in a moment. That's the power encounter. That's like, Lord, thank you for that. And then later on, the priest, he orders the priests of Baal to be, to be killed because they're false. And he says to Israel, this is an amazing thing, when he's building that stone altar on which to put the sacrifice, he makes it out of 12 stones. 
each with the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, so that they would know who their God really is. Man, I pray that's true for each of us, that we would know who Jesus is, that he is the king. We, and I just pray that that kind of power encounter, that God would bring that into your areas where you know it's time to let the Lord reign, where you know it's time to let your God show off. But let me say this, that God's power is more often hidden than it is seen. Is that true? Yeah. Look, look at, if you're taking notes, Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says this. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. What's that saying? That's saying that our greatest need, the greatest need of anybody who was ever made, was to be made alive in Jesus, to no longer fear or suffer death for the sins that we have committed, the things that offended God, that when we were hopelessly in our sin and unable to save ourselves, God made us alive through Christ Jesus. He canceled the charge of what we owed him, the charge that was going to condemn us, and he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed all the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them. Jesus made a public, public spectacle of anything, all the things that were coming against us by the cross. But here's the question. When Jesus was on trial, when Jesus was carrying his cross to Golgotha, when he was being crucified and when he gave up his life, who knew what was really going on? Not the Romans. They're mocking him. They're gambling for his clothes. Not the Jewish leaders. They're thinking there's another pretend Messiah that we've got to get rid of, so good riddance. Not even the disciples who are heartbroken at their Lord's crucifixion, at what they saw as his imminent death. And they did not understand until later, until the Holy Spirit came upon them, what the significance of this was. So here's the point. The most powerful thing in all of human history, which is Christ's death on the cross and the consequent freedom of us from sin so that we can live eternally, wasn't known or seen by anybody that could understand it. And I would say to you that God's power is often just as hidden in your life. You cannot see all the things that he's up to. You cannot know all the plans that he has for each one of you or for us as a church. And sometimes that hiddenness of the outworking of his power, because we can't see it, we can get prone to doubt or despair or discouragement, the dreaded D's, doubt, discouragement, you know, despair. We can let these things occupy our mind. And that's why Colossians 2, 13 to 15 is such an encouragement. God's power is so often hidden from us so often but don't give up keep persevering in your prayers some of you will be getting together with family and friends over the holidays and sometimes there's going to be some people in your circle maybe you just get together with them around this time of year 
You get to see them once a year. But you've been praying for them. You've been witnessing to them. You've been sharing the love of Christ from time to time. And so far without result. And you might be discouraged. You might be despairing. You might be saying, Lord, where is your power in the life of these people that I care so much about? Or maybe, you know, they've just been wandering along. Maybe they, you know, they, they saw the promised land, but they're heading back out into the desert. And because you love them so and you know them, you've been praying for them. You've been standing in the gap on their behalf in prayer. And you will have an opportunity to say something to them, or so you hope. Don't be discouraged. Keep praying. I love this story. Close with this, because I'm kind of running out of time. Close with this. Howard Hendricks is a guy who I, I never met personally, but I would attend conferences that he would speak at. This is going way back, but he was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, gifted speaker, gifted teacher, and he was talking about uh, the power of prayer, persevering prayer, and he used his own family situation as an example. He said, my dad is a military man. He's been a, a career military all his life, and so with him, the plan's the plan. He knows what he knows, and even though Howard came to faith as a young man and began to share his faith with his father, his father said, I don't want, it's okay for you, son, but I don't want any part of that. And so year after year, he sees his son grow up and go to seminary and become a well-respected professor, a good evangelist, have a, a successful life. But he's not interested in the Jesus that his son knows. And Howard at a conference is sharing this. He shares, guys, he's talking to a group of young guys. He says, I've been praying for my father now for 40 years and counting. He still hasn't come to faith, but I'm not giving up. I know God's got a plan. I'm still persevering in prayer. So he just shares that as an illustration. Shortly after that, one of the young guys in there, this is in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, is driving the church bus. You know, if you've ever seen a picture of Howard Hendricks, he's a distinctive-looking guy. I'll just kind of leave it at that. He's like, that's Howard Hendricks. So this young man's driving the church bus, hits a red light, you know, comes to a red light, glances over at the corner, sees a guy who looks like an older version of Howard Hendricks. And he says, my, my, that's got to be Howard Hendricks' dad. I mean, it looks like him. It just looks like an older version. So he pulls the bus, light goes green, pulls the bus around the corner, stops, gets out, runs up to this guy and says, are you Howard Hendricks' father? <laughs> and the guy says, yes, I am. And so he shares, this young guy shares with Howard Hendricks' father the love of Christ and the gospel. And then Howard Hendricks says, a few days later, I get a call from my dad. He says, son, are you sitting down? So he says, okay, I'm sitting down. He says, I'm under a new commanding officer. Forty years and counting, in the fullness of God's time, through the faithfulness of his prayer, through not giving up, through trusting in the power of God, he was able to see his dad come to faith. That's just on that. I would love each of you to, to just think, what situation do you need to plug into that aspect of persevering prayer? so that you would see God's power unleashed in the fullness of His time in your life or in the situation of those that you love. So we're going to leave it there. Christ comes as King. You know, one of, I, we all have favorite carols. One of my favorite carols is Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. What's the next line? Let earth receive her King. In these weeks ahead as we prepare for the coming of our Lord, Let's prepare our hearts to receive our King. And today we've talked about receiving the authority that He naturally comes with, the authority that He has 
as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The authority that he has is our Creator. Let that be ours. Let us practice that as we, as we give thanks in all circumstances, acknowledging his authority. And let us know that as a king, he comes with power. Power to, to enable us to live the life he's called us to, to change the circumstances that need changing that, so that they'll glorify him and bless other people. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Let, let's just give God some rejoicing. Hey, you can't talk about the king without that.